Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard the gospel lesson. If you're wondering what exactly to make of it, then I'm glad to tell you you're in good company. Uh, Dr. Carl Fikencher of Concordia Seminary, Fort Wayne, was speaking about this text on issues, etc. this week, the uh, you know, Lutheran Public Radio. We're not close enough to any stations to like tune into it, but you can get it on the internet. Um, <clears throat> anyway, he said that this is probably the most difficult text in the three-year lectionary. I've read five commentaries this week, and they all uh, say the same thing. Not that they share their interpretation of the text, but that they say that there's too many different interpretations of this text, that you would have to write like a whole separate book about how the, the different interpretations of this text are viewed. I also let, met with the local pastors this week, as is the custom on Thursdays, and the text was a challenge. In fact, it continued all over into Friday and Saturday with ongoing discussion and debate, um, which I am I'm so grateful, so thankful to have that. You know, iron sharpens iron, and, and it's so nice to all be looking at the same text each week, you know, to be looking at these texts and, and you know, working through them together. So you have a rich man and his manager, and a bad report comes to the rich man, who then says, what is this that I hear about you? Turn, the, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Faced with his imminent departure and realizing that he can't do other work to get by, he devises a plan. I know. I will ingratiate myself with these other, with these debtors who owe my master. And then that way they will take me in in the future. So he cuts them all deals. He makes deals with them. Uh, you owe 50, you owe 100. Let's rewrite the receipt so you owe 50. The rich man, while he may be mad at his loss of property, at the squandering of his possessions, nevertheless, he at least appreciates the shrewdness with which this dishonest manager has operated. That's why he commends him. <clears throat> so far, I think we might be all right in understanding that. I mean, that the whole uh, parable sort of makes sense, I think. <clears throat> I mean, after all, people in a fallen world will cheat each other. So, you know, we, we kind of can see how this plays out. But what makes this uh, tough is that Jesus seems to be approving of the dishonest manager. That's what makes this hard. How could Jesus approve of this dishonest manager and the actions that he's taken? Uh, Richard Lenski, in his commentary, which is one of, the, one of my go-tos, um, says this, no other parable has caused as much perplexity and has received as many interpretations as this one. Because there are so many interpretations, those who attempt to survey of them find it necessary to classify them into groups and then admit that they have not included all of them. I will be giving a brief survey of various interpretations today, and I will readily admit that it's not all-inclusive. Lenski goes on to say that one interpretation alone is sound, and that's the one that Jesus himself gives. And I think that that is good, sober 
advice. And I'm going to stick with that, but I want to go over the, uh, some of these different ways that we could view this lesson first. So the first interpretation I'll call the good master. The master is known to be a good and gracious master. The manager knows that he can rely on the gracious disposition of his master. So he strikes this bargain with the debtors, giving them discounts, trusting that he will receive a reward from them in the, in the future. But the master, and, and that's, that's okay, kind of as it goes, okay. And, and I've heard, I mean, all of these interpretations I'm giving you are supported by honest-to-God, good Bible teachers, exegetes, and theologians. But, but there's disagreement in, in this. So, so what's the problem with this approach? Well, the problem is the master is firing the manager. So it doesn't make him kind of look like a good and gracious master. So, so if you go with this interpretation, the idea is that they're looking, they're saying, the dishonest manager who Jesus commended, the reason he commends him is because he was relying on the graciousness of his master, kind of like we should be relying on the good and gracious heavenly father that we have. I mean, that's an appealing argument. But then it breaks down when you start thinking, but he's, is it good and gracious that he's firing him? And, and plus, then the other thing is that um, this manager, it's, he's not exactly trusting in the graciousness of his master. He's more trusting that, that um, he's going to get a benefit, a k- kickback from the people that he's giving a discount to. So where is his trust? It's in money. I mean, any way you shake it out, his trust is that he can use money to get something back from it. I don't know. It's kind of hard to swallow that one because money is the object of his trust. So that one kind of breaks down in my view. Okay, the second interpretation, I'll call this the messianic manager. The master has unjustly accused the manager. Well, I mean, it's true when you read the text, it says that the master heard a bad report. It doesn't say that the manager was actually dishonest. Not yet anyway, it doesn't. Now, he was dishonest in his dealings. That's, that's true, undisputable. But it doesn't say initially that it was dishonest. It just says that the master heard a, dishonest, uh, a report about him, and the master convicted him. So under this, under this interpretation and view, the, the manager heard, uh, or the, the, the master heard the, dishonest, the, the report and fired the manager. And the manager said, you know what? If you're going to call me dishonest, I'm going to go ahead and own it and be dishonest. That's what you want me to do? Okay, I'll do that. I'll be the dishonest manager. And I'll do it to, uh, and I will do it, I will take that mantle. I will take that mantle upon myself. Okay. This is kind of appealing because we think of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He knew the sin. He, he became sin for us. So you can see how this kind of becomes an appealing view of the passage. It's shocking. Yes, I mean, it's shocking for sure that we would think of Jesus as the dishonest manager, that the dishonest manager is the Messiah. But it is shocking. It's shocking what Jesus would do for our sin. 
for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5. That's, that's Jesus Christ. God made Jesus to be sin so that we might be saved. Okay, so that interpretation is very appealing. But then there's an issue. In order for justice to be uh, uh, satisfied, a great injustice occurred. That's true. Jesus being crucified was an injustice. And in order for God's justice to be satisfied, that injustice had to occur. But Jesus took upon himself our sin. And when you consider this manager who was acting out of self-interest, preserving himself, the messianic concept sort of breaks down. You know, because Jesus didn't, he wasn't acting for himself. He was acting for, for you. So this, this idea kind of, it, it just breaks down because the manager was, was acting for his own interests. That's what, meant, that's what it meant for him to be shrewd. He was shrewd because he was acting for his own interest. All right, there's a third interpretation. This is probably the most popular, or at least it's the most widely used. I'll call it stewardship. In fact, my sermon title is Good Stewardship, and it's an ironic title because I don't think this is about stewardship, ultimately. It's all about the money. That's, that's the third idea, stewardship. It's all about the money. Yes, this can be... Uh, simply a message of good stewardship. Jesus is teaching that money should be used wisely. Think about his words. He said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. So use the little bit of money that you have and you can be trusted with more. This is like a concept, a stewardship concept here. The idea is that we as Christians should be faithful with money, using it wisely, even evangelically, using it evangelically so that when the money finally becomes worthless, which it will, we can be in heaven with others who have come to that same eternal dwelling that has been made. Uh, God does call us to be wise steward, and he entrusts us to us wealth, which is not our own. That is true. I mean, this is, all, this is true. This is kind of what makes this appealing for some people to make this a stewardship lesson. I mean, every penny that you have is a gift from God. And moreover, every single breath you take is a gift from God. I mean, there is nothing that we receive. As I have said before, we are all living hand to mouth from God. He feeds us all constantly. And although there is a stewardship message here in the text, is that the limit of the lesson? And if it is, then how do you explain Jesus' message to the Pharisees? Because he says, at the end of our pericope today, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Why this talk of self-justification? If this is just a stewardship lesson, why all this talk of self-justification? Jesus if Jesus was admonishing the Pharisees to keep the law better, to like do a better job of stewardship, wouldn't that be just diving further into self-justification? The same self-justification that he is criticizing? 
Because see, he's telling them, you justify yourself. You, you justify yourselves before other men. So that doesn't fit either. That just doesn't, it just doesn't, doesn't work. So we come back to what I said earlier was what I find Richard Lenski's uh, commentary to be good, sober-minded, a good, sober-minded approach to this. And that is to take Jesus' interpretation of the parable itself, to focus on what Jesus said the parable means. So let's look at that text a little more closely. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In the end, this is what Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. Now, in the King James Version, does, does anyone know the, how King James translates money? Mammon. mammon. Actually, that's the better word. That's, that's the word. It's mammon. In the King James, it says you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, in order to make this a little more clear, most of the English translations have changed it to money. So you can't serve God and money. But actually, I think it makes it less clear. So that's why I say mammon. That is most helpful to use that word mammon because uh, mammon is at the root of the understanding here. The word mammon was transliterated from the Greek word mammonas, which was also translated from the Aramaic word. And, and it shares the same root as the word amen. You know what amen is? We say amen. It, it, it was amen, and, and it means truly. When Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he was saying, amen, amen. Well, he was probably speaking in Aramaic, but anyway, it was translated, amen, amen. So it's, it shares, mammon and amen share the same root. And the point is that in which you place your trust. It's, it's trust personified. That's what mammon is. So why the connection between money and trust? because people place their trust in money. Money becomes a God to people. It becomes a false God. And you can give it a name. It's called memon. that which you place your trust in. It just so happens that money is so frequently the thing. Riches are so frequently the thing that we place our trust in that Jesus was speaking here about wealth the false god of wealth, or you can call that false god mammon. <clears throat> you know, Luther says in his large catechism, that upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Who is a God? Who is a false god? Is that which you place your trust in. Mammon is nothing more or less than a false god. And Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
See, it makes a little more sense now. He's saying you cannot serve the false god mammon. The false god mammon is used to justify people in this world. In this world, it is a false god, but it is used to justify people. The sinful and fallen world looks to big and flashy things and says, oh, look how God has blessed them. He drives a nice car. He must be successful. They live in a nice house. God has certainly smiled on them. Corollary is also made in this fallen world. Oh, this, this poor and destitute person. God's judgment. Oh, you reap what you sow. God's judgment being visited upon this person. We saw that with Job. Went through the, in the ladies' Bible study, we saw that with Job. Was it Job's fault that he was, that he was uh, so um, uh, torn apart? No. Actually, it was, it was because of how commendable Job was. That made him a target for Satan. It wasn't that he did anything wrong. It's that he was doing things right that made him a target. Yet his friends came around. They're like, you've got to confess this sin, brother, and tell God what you've done wrong if you want to get, be restored. We look at the poor and impoverished in the third world countries and we feel sorry for them. You know, we do. Oh, how, how awful for them. They don't have shoes on their feet. They look at us and they're like, they feel sorry for us. They're like, look at these people. I mean, they run around like chickens with their head cut off. They're so busy and frantic. They don't have time to, to read, to, to uh, discuss with neighbors, to help a friend. They're so busy. Sometimes we just have a backwards picture of things. But where are you placing your trust? That's the key to this lesson is where are you placing your trust? Are you worshiping the false god, Mammon? And if your answer is no, stop lying. You spend, you save all your life. You live by money, food, clothes, heat in your house, a roof over your head, a car. And the sinful nature that you contend with sees these things as a, as a god, as Mammon the God by which we live and have our being. And that's false. If you leave here today contemplating this and asking yourself, how can I avoid giving any foothold to this false God of mammon? That is a good thing. I think that's the idea. I can't prescribe for you or for myself exactly what things I need to change and that's, but that's not the point. The point is just to recognize this and to think this through, that, that mammon becomes a false god because you place your trust in it. I don't need God. I have plenty of money in my bank account, in the stock market. <laughs> How's that? <clears throat> On the other hand, maybe... Maybe some people would think, I've got to sell everything I have and give all my possessions to the poor. Then I'll have my way into heaven. Well, guess what? You're still putting your trust in mammon. It's just you think you can use it as the 
springboard to launch you into heaven because I'm going to give it all away. No, that's not the answer either. In both cases, what is the object of your trust? It's the wealth. It's the mammon. So the point in all this is to focus your trust in Christ Jesus. Jesus has kept the law on your behalf. This world is messy, and you all know it. This world is messy, and we are mired in sin. Can you believe week after week we have to come in here and confess the same words to God? Uh, I, a poor, miserable sinner? Week after week? Why? Because we are sinners. Our keeping of the law is not going to do away with that. Trusting in mammon to secure your place in heaven is not going to work. Okay, yes, stewardship is great. Use the resource you've been given wisely. Meditate upon that. Think about that, what it means to use your resources wisely. Just disconnect it from your salvation. Your salvation is totally secured by Christ. You fail to give a tithe or whatever is the right amount you should be giving, that's okay. Christ has secured for you forgiveness. Put your trust in Christ. It's him who has died for you. Your money will die, but it doesn't die for you. Christ died for you. Hear his word of truth, that in him your sins are forgiven. In faith, receive the forgiveness that is offered here at this altar. In faith, return to your baptism every day. That's what we do. We make the sign of the cross. We remember our baptism, that we have been claimed. And we say every day, God, I thank you. I thank you for having mercy on me, a sinner. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.